thank you for uh, our morning together. We pray, O oh Lord, that it would, uh, it would move us in uh, the opening of your word together, uh, in the way that we talk about our lives and we share what's good about our lives and what's hard um, in, our, in our prayers. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, use this morning in our lives even in an uh, an immediate way, um, to cause us to love you more with our hearts and our minds and our wills. Father, and to to consider what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do pray, God, that as we walk out of here this morning, that that you would inflame us for you, O Lord, and that you would challenge us to bear your grace as your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I read a, uh, a book last fall entitled Hillbilly Elegy. And uh, the book is a memoir written by a young man in his late 20s, probably written in his late 20s, early 30s now, who grew up in the Rust Belt. His name is J.D. Vance. And he grew up in uh, Middleton, Ohio in working-class brokenness and poverty. To make a long story short, Vance, who almost failed out of high school, ends up graduating from Yale Law School. Okay? And um, a lot of memorable parts in the book, especially about the way he was raised, hard parts, really, but one of the most memorable parts for me was the tension that Vance felt between those two worlds, the world of his past, which was poverty, Uh, deep brokenness, systemic brokenness, the Rust Belt, and the new world that he was entering into of of the elites, Yale Law School. So in one scene, he describes going to a recruitment dinner for one of the most prestigious law firms in Washington, D.C. And he's at the dinner, and um, a waitress comes up to, to him and asks him if he wants sparkling water or regular water. Well, he kind of laughs to himself and thinks, this is just the most pretentious way of describing water. Of course, I want the clear stuff. And so he thinks, I'm going to order just the sparkling water. And he tastes the sparkling water, and he publicly has to spit it out because, as he says, it tastes like getting Diet Coke from a Subway when all the syrup is run out. He's never had, <laughs> never had sparkling water before. Another point at that dinner, too, he said, I noticed that the tablecloths, and they looked softer than any bed sheets I'd ever slept in. And I was trying to figure out a way to touch them without looking strange about it, you know, to touch the, the tablecloth. On the other end of the spectrum, when he goes home uh, back to Middleton, he comes home at one point and um, he stops to fill up with gas and he notices that, um, that a woman is pumping gas next to him and she's well, wearing a Yale t-shirt. And so he engages her and says, um, did you go to Yale? And she goes, no, but my nephew, my nephew does. Then she asked him, do you go to Yale? And, and he looks at her and he just lies to her and says, no, no, uh, but my girlfriend does. And as he's reflecting on why he would lie about such a kind of an inane and, and silly thing, he says this, I felt like in that moment I had to choose. Was I a Yale law student or was I a Middleton kid with hillbilly grandparents? If the former, then I could exchange pleasantries and talk about New Haven's beauty. But if the latter, then she occupied the other side of an invisible divide and could not be trusted. At her cocktail parties and fancy dinners, she and her nephew probably even laughed about 
the unsophisticates of Ohio, how they clung to their guns and their religion. And I would not join forces with her. I had lied to a stranger, listen, I had lied to a stranger to avoid feeling like a traitor. So the book is, is interesting on so many levels. One, because it's, it's, uh, it just puts into relief the insurmountable uh, uh, cultural divide that, that upward mobility sometimes requires. Funny stories in there too. But the part that stood out to me was just this journey of this young man between two worlds when as he says, loyalty to one world feels like it means betrayal to another world. And his story reminded me of a phrase that the great English pastor John Stott used to describe how Christians should at least feel on their journey to the side of heaven. Uh, Stott actually entitled a book this. He said that Christians are a people who, who live between two worlds. Between two worlds. And then he says it's basically the world of the Bible in one hand and the world of the newspaper, Time Magazine, in the other. This morning, I want to begin just by describing those two worlds to you in a little bit more detail and just helping you once again feel the tension that they create in how we just live. We don't think about it a lot, but it's always in the background, I think, as we're trying to understand what it means to follow Christ where he's called us. So one of those worlds is, is the world of God's kingdom, right? The world, that's how Jesus describes it, the kingdom or the reign of God. It is the world of trying to love Jesus Christ and to live under his authority. It's the world where um, we're told that if we meet a stranger along the way, and that stranger is dying in a ditch no matter who he is, we are to stop what we're doing and to spend whatever resources we have until that stranger is fully healed. It's the world where prodigals are allowed to come home to the outstretched arms of a father who would be so bold as to kill his prized calf and to throw a party when they get there. It's a world where we proclaim that faith and hope and love set the pattern for life. It's the world where the religious people are not safe and that thieves who are dying a criminal's death are offered forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven with their last breath. That's one of the worlds that we occupy, that we live in. The other world is where our feet hit the ground every day, isn't it? It's the world of this present age. It's the world of, uh, of deadlines and of bottom lines. It's the world where we actually lock our doors. It's the world where we, we turn on news stations and see uh, different uh, folks yelling across the news desk at each other about what they believe. It's the world where we struggle to get along with people who don't share our assumptions and beliefs about the way that life should go. It's this world that many historians are calling secular in a, uh, a brand new sense. Now, if you've never heard that word before, um, secular uh, historically has just meant the opposite of sacred. The word secular just means profane or ordinary. But when historians talk about how our world is becoming more secular, they're not saying at this level that, that people are rejecting the sacred. What they're saying is that people are rejecting that the sacred has to be tied to an experience of a transcendent God. And all of a sudden, the sacred, the sacred has, has become a, um, a thing that happens inside the world, not outside of it. So, for example, in our food, in our food, think about it for a moment. 
Think about all the energy and industry now that goes around a coffee bean these days. Or think about the, the fancy restaurants that we visit and how it feels like sometimes you have to know the full life story of a chicken before you eat it, right? Take exercise as another example. The magazine Wired wrote an article last year entitled, Fitness Isn't a Lifestyle Anymore, It Is a Cult, right? With names like Soul Cycle. The magazine said, look, fitness programs now create communities where people love and encourage and care and hold each other accountable in ways previously almost only exclusively belonging to a church. We could talk about the movements in offices to create lifestyle environments where people are, are given time off to meditate in the office or to take art classes or to exercise. Or we could talk about the entertainment industry where every major sporting event now feels like it takes on the aura of, of a worship service. Or this is the best game of all, you know, the, the, the superlatives that go along with every moment now that we're about to experience here in less than a week for the Super Bowl. The word secular now uh, means that we no longer think that something beyond this world is required to live a meaningful life in the world. And that's the world where your feet hit the ground every day. It's the world where our assumptions about God, our assumptions about life and reality and about meaning and purpose are no longer shared. Flannery O'Connor, 60 years ago, wrote uh, um, a description of the American South that's always stuck with me. She said the American South, the way that the, the reason it's produced so many great writers is it because it's still haunted by the figure of Jesus Christ. That the, Christ, the South is not Christ-centered by any means, but 60 years ago, it still felt like it was Christ-haunted. You could have said that about Western culture for, for millennia, right? For hundreds of years. But the, the shadow of, uh, of God, the shadow of Jesus Christ has receded in such a way that now the dividing line between the Bible and Time magazine um, is, uh, uh, is more clear than it's ever been before. We live in two worlds. Do you ever feel that before? Do you feel the tension in those two worlds? And the question, the question that's always been around for people who are followers of God is, how do we live faithfully? How do we live faithfully in that tension, in between those two worlds? This is where a figure, a man like Daniel, can help us out a lot. If you don't know the story of Daniel, Daniel was born in Jerusalem around the turn of the century, 6 BC. He was born of a noble birth, he was part of the aristocratic class, and when he was only a boy, the pagan Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the, you know, the, the, the stuff of the world at that time, the most powerful man in the world, came into Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, and carried off his friends and family, killed many people whom he loved, and then carried off his friends and family into uh, uh, captivity in Babylon. The strategy of Nebuchadnezzar was not, not, uh, not a bad strategy, it was to basically to take the talent of of a place like Jerusalem, and not to do away with a talent, but to reshape and assimilate that talent to use it for his own kingdom. And so that's what D Daniel faced. Here was a boy who was talented, um, who, was, uh, who was highly regarded, and Nebuchadnezzar intended to shape him according to Babylonian culture and lifestyle. So immediately Daniel goes to Babylon, and here he is caught between these two worlds. It's the world of covenant loyalty to God on one hand, in the world of civic loyalty to pagan power on the other. 
Imagine yourself there. How in the world is Daniel supposed to love and to live faithfully in a time and a place like that? How is he supposed to, to abide in Christ while living in Babylon or in Dallas, Texas? That's the question we're going to chase together this spring over the next 12 weeks. And before we get there, before we get to Daniel himself, I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning framing Daniel's situation for you. And I want to do that by reading a letter that God sent through the prophet Jeremiah to all the exiles who had moved to Jerusalem, including Daniel. And it's a letter that specifically addresses this question, the context of how to live faithfully in a new place that is foreign, that for them was wicked, that was immoral, how to do that well according to God's design. This is not just a letter for them, also for us and our own journey to faithfully live between these two worlds. You have this in your handout here. It's Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Let's read it together, and then we'll talk about it for a moment. Jeremiah says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The letter says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on, on its behalf, oh, excuse me, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's look at it together now. So two basic things I want you to notice that frames the experience of exile for Daniel, for the people of Israel, and I think for us. Uh, one thing I want you to notice, I just want you to notice the instructions that God gives them, okay? Very, very basically. And really the spirit of the instructions. What is God 
calling his people to do as they move to Babylon. All right? And the second thing I want you to notice this morning, and perhaps more importantly, I want you to notice the promise at the end of those instructions in verses 11 through 14 that frames their obedience, that enables their obedience. Okay? So the instructions themselves and then the promise. And we might say it like this. What is God calling his people to do? What is he calling them to do in Babylon? And then secondly, what is he calling them to believe? What is he calling them to believe along the way? Well, first, what is he calling them to do? Look with me again at verses 4 through 7. There are really two, I think, in the spirit of the text, two overall messages here. The first one that, that, that God really wants his people to grasp is he wants them to make Babylon their home. Okay? Now, that may not seem radical to you, but it was deeply radical to them. Do you remember who Babylon was? They didn't just sort of land in Babylon because they happened to be looking for a job, right? I mean, Babylon had, had, had killed their relatives, had burned their city, and now God, in a radical way, is saying, I want you to treat this place like it's your home. Treat it like it's your home. Let's read the text again. Verse 4. God says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. What does that suggest? What it suggests is they're supposed to do things that show their commitment to be in that place for a long time. It suggests that they're supposed to look at that place and say, this is where we're putting our roots. This is home to us. Secondly, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters there. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, some people have read this and said, look, is God just saying, go marry whoever you want, marry the Babylonians, you know, assimilate? It didn't say that. What the text says is, I expect you to practice the creation mandate joyfully in this new place. I expect you to be so hopeful about where I've called you that you would do things like carry on your ordinary life even though you're not in the place where you feel settled. Do the important stuff. Do the basic stuff, even though the conditions aren't the way that you would have planned them for yourself. Make this place your home. Now, this is really important because you'll, you'll see it in the letter that this is very contrary to what the false prophets were saying. The false prophets were saying, look, you ain't going to be here long. And whatever you do, don't attach yourself to this place. And, and you could see how that would be, that would sound very pietistic and very holy. Babylon was a wicked pagan empire. And when a prophet of the Lord came to you and said, um, look, don't attach yourself to this holy, this pagan, this wicked place, it sounds good. Right? And yet God is saying, attach yourself. You need to attach yourself. You need to weave yourself in to the fabric of this city. Jerusalem did not like Babylon. Israel did not like Babylon. And yet God says, I have sent you here and for you to be faithful to me, you have to put roots down. I know a pastor in, um, in our denomination, I don't know him personally, I know him by, by reputation, I met him before, his name's Ray Kanata. And, and Ray is a pastor that was called to plant a church in New Orleans. And what Ray realized very, very quickly, which I think most pastors should, if it's not, not clear, is that in order to love a place, well, you have to get to know a place. And so he sought to do that, and the way that he did it creatively is he, he set out on a quest to eat at every single restaurant in New Orleans. Now, I can't imagine the expense of that. 
Um, but you know New Orleans is known as a food city, right? And so I guess he's thinking, you know, how do I get to know a city? You get to know it through its glory. And so Ray did that, and, and an Atlanta uh, producer uh, picked up on the story and came and did a 90-minute documentary about Ray called The Man Who Ate Through New Orleans. And I don't know whether the producer is a Christian or not, but he, he said this in one of his interviews about Ray. He said, he said really what the, the movie is about is not the food quest per se. It's about Ray falling in love with the city and what he learned about the city through eating it, its food. So what was he doing? Ray was making New Orleans his home. He was learning what it meant to get attached. He was weaving himself into the fabric of the city. It was his way of planting gardens and eating the produce. Now, I'm sure that many of you, I, I, am I sure? I'm not sure that I'm sure. How many of you are not from Dallas, Texas? My hand's up. So about 50%, right? And, and many of you maybe have come here and you have found that in your heart of hearts, this feels like home to you. Um, it's, it's getting that way for me, more so. Um, I, you may notice I'm from Tennessee, and so my heartstrings are kind of pulled um, toward the hills of the Mid-South a little bit. My fourth-generation Nashvilleian or whatever, you know. And, um, and so, but, uh, and so I, I feel internally sometimes drawn to that region. But here's what I love. Here, here's what I love about the simplicity of this letter. I don't have to go home tonight and wonder where my home is. God has called me to make Dallas, Texas my home. This is my home. And everyone who raised their hand who's not from here, guess what? This is your home. No matter if you're just traveling through here for grad school or for six months for a job, God has called you to put down roots here. Are you attaching yourself to this place in such a way that you feel like the welfare of the city, the welfare of how this place does, is somehow wrapped up in your own welfare? Do you love it like that? Make this your home. Second, second message here that it's important to say and just as important is not only do we make the place that God calls us our home, but we are to seek and pray for the welfare of that place. Not just put our roots down, but to seek and pray for the welfare of the city. What does that mean? The word welfare here comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Maybe you've heard the word before. It just means, it means flourishing in the widest sense, Okay economic flourishing, spiritual flourishing, material flourishing, emotional and relational flourishing. It's the whole gamut. It's the world as it's supposed to be. And so God is saying, not only do I expect you to, to weave yourself into the fabric of Babylon as a pagan and wicked city, but I expect you to become agents of transforming grace to that city as well, in the widest sense. I expect you to go into the city and to love those people. I expect you to pray for the common life that you have that's bound up with the city. I expect you to seek the welfare of your neighbor no matter what they believe, no matter what they practice. This is an important Christian principle. Christians don't get to, we don't get to decide who to love based on what we share with them. We are called to be indiscriminate lovers of people. No matter who they are or what they believe, God calls us to love the city that we're bound up in. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, says it this way. He says, loving and preaching the gospel without doing something about the fact that schools are underperforming, that there's so little affordable housing, that the streets are unsafe, 
If you don't do something about it, then you really haven't done what God wants you to do. He calls Christians to stay in the city and to identify with the city. If you are in a city or a community that is broken, where pe- which is everyone, <laughs> where people are burned out or spiritually lost, where there is violence, stay there as long as you can. Identify as much as you can. You have to work this out with your conscience, he says. But Jeremiah 29 says, don't just have loving feelings. Don't just preach. Identify. Serve. Pray for the peace of the place where God has called you. I want to stretch our imaginations a little bit this morning. I just want to give you an example of a young couple that I know that's doing this, that has sought to do this. It's a couple that I got to know a little bit from my days as a campus minister at SMU. Um, he actually became a Christian in college, you can say that. Um, married a young woman who grew up around this church. Uh, and, um, and, and, and upon graduating, they got married and he, over a course of events, ended up taking over his family business in Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, um, well she, uh, the, the, the uh, young woman he married is from Dallas, Texas, and she's a Scot. Went to HP, grew up in HP, and Greensboro, North Carolina might as well be Babylon to her. And so he was taking her back to Greensboro, right, to sort of run this business, and she reluctantly went, but did not, did not, did not, with every fabric of her being, want to go. Well, she goes reluctantly and finds herself overseeing the family's charitable foundation, and fairly quickly she begins questioning the old ways that that foundation was distributing their charitable giving. And the way they'd done it for so many years was, she would say it's not a bad way, was, was to basically take the, the charities that they liked and just to give money to whoever liked those charities the best, right? So she began asking the question, well, what, instead of doing that, how do we, what if we thought about how we can actually move the dial, move the dial is the, the language she used, move the dial on an important issue affecting the welfare of Greensboro, North Carolina? Not our home, right? So she chooses one of the issues in particular that's glaring in, her, in the research. It's the issue of chronic homelessness. And the foundation begins partnering with a collaborative network of more than 40 other organizations. And they began addressing not just the material needs of the homeless, but the spiritual needs, the vocational needs, the emotional needs, the social brokenness that surrounds the issue. And it just so happens that the husband's business was and is owning, um, owning apartment complexes. And, and one of the things that happened was to integrate all this together in his apartment complexes, they committed to, to, to at least two units in every location, every complex, two units, reserving two units for homeless, for the homeless, to get them back on their feet. So in the first 18 months of the initiative, those partners ended chronic homelessness in 44 households and helped dozens of men and women find jobs in the community. But get this. The initiative saved the city $400,000 in homeless emergency services. So that in that particular county, chronic homelessness dropped by a third in two years, and they really believe it'll be wiped out in the next three years. Now, I just, I just wanted to use an example there of how all those things could fit together, right? Here's a, here's a young woman who found herself in a place that she didn't want to live, didn't want to go. Greensboro, North Carolina. She made that place her home. And she began asking the question, how do I move the dial here and seek the welfare of this place where God has called me for these years? Now granted, 
she was in a unique position with a lot of material resources to deal with. Many of you are not in that position, including this one. But I want you to think about who the letter was written to. It was, it was written to Israel, right? And what had just happened to Israel? They had just had all their possessions taken away. They were not in any sort of unique position of wealth. They, Babylon didn't come in and say, look, I, get liquid first, then come, right? Sell your farmland, then come with us. Take your grandmother's heirloom pearls and come with us. They were starting over. They had nothing, and yet God said, you can do with nothing. You can still seek the welfare of the city in which I've called you. You have skills. You have social capital. You have time. You have creativity. You have the message of the gospel. The message of the immeasurable grace of God. And you have people longing to hear that message. Longing to hear, maybe for the first time, that, that they are not the sum of their successes or failures. That God could love them beyond that. And notice what else you have. The passage says you have the ear of the God of the universe. You have the ear of the God who does own a cattle, the cattle in a thousand hills. And God says, look, here's what I want you to do. As my son, made in my image and redeemed by me, I want you to come into my presence with all the privileges that entails, and I want you to come to me, and I want you to ask me in prayer for the flourishing of your city. You can pray. You can begin to pray for the flourishing of the place where God has called you. How do we live faithfully in between two worlds? Well, number one, we weave ourselves in the fabric of that place. We, we make it our home, and then we commit to seeking and praying for the flourishing of our place, no matter how immoral it is, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us. But that's not enough. In order to do this well in the way that God calls us, we desperately need to believe what God says is true in verses 10 through 14. Let's look there together, and we'll end here. I'll send you to your tables this morning. I'm going to read just verses 10 through 11. Some of you may have heard this verse before, but maybe never in the right context. Okay, so here's, here's, what, here's what Jeremiah, the Lord says to his servant Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Those are plans for welfare, for flourishing, that is and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. So what is God telling his people as they move into a hostile place, as they live in between these two worlds, perhaps of competing loyalties? God is saying this, look, I am planning for you a future that is beyond anything that you could achieve for yourself, no matter how well you do in Babylon. I will restore you. I will bring you back. I will be the lifter of your head. I will fulfill your hope no matter what. Just revisit for a moment the situation that Israel is moving into. How in the world could Israel really make a home in a place that was so foreign to them? They didn't speak the language. People weren't opening their doors to them. It wasn't a hospitable place. How could they spend themselves in love for a city that would never ever love them back? How could they seek the welfare of a people that had just destroyed their own welfare? They could do that only if, if and only if, 
They trusted that God himself was giving them a future greater than anything that Babylon could ever offer them. They could do that only if, if and only if. They could love Babylon if and only if they knew that something far greater than Babylon was loving them and at work in them and around them as they went about obeying God's commands. I mean, this is really important, really, really important for all that we've said this morning. Um, if you make an earthly city or your neighbor's welfare or any other social or evangelical agenda, your supreme motivation for doing good, then you will be crushed when the results don't go as you hoped. In fact, you might be crushed even when the results do go as you hoped. Why? Because you will always feel like that city or that neighbor or that agenda owes you a future. Owes you a future, owes you a hope, owes you a measure of happiness that it can never deliver. But if you were convinced this morning that it is God himself who holds out your future, it's a future that you have not earned nor could ever achieve, a future that is dazzling in its description of restoration, a future that is secured by the power of the one who made everything out of nothing and who raised dead men to life. If you are convinced that it is God's work that is your reward and not your own work, then you can spend yourself in radical love and obedience and never run out of joy because your welfare is secure in him. And how do we know that's true? Because this is exactly what Jesus did. Think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus, the very Son of God, left his home in heaven. He came into our Babylon. Jesus committed himself to our world. He weaved himself into the life of our world for 30 years as a carpenter. He prayed for us. He sought our welfare. And what was the reward that Jesus got for all of his energy? It was crucifixion. We strung him up on a cross. Now, can you imagine if Jesus Christ himself had made the results of his life at that time, his primary motivation for ministry. Is it fair to say that Jesus was the greatest small group leader of all time? Like better than anyone at your tables right now? Is that fair to say? And yet his entire small group abandoned him in his time of greatest need. After three years of teaching them, they all left him when he needed them the most. How did Jesus keep going? How did he move to the cross with joy, as the writer of Hebrews says? He did it because he was convinced that his heavenly Father held out for him a future and a hope that was secure. And his deep belief in the future and hope that his heavenly Father had for him was vindicated for him in his resurrection. And the gospel now tells us, if you are with us through Revelation, the gospel now tells us that Jesus has entered a heavenly city. He's in it right in the middle. He lives downtown in the heavenly city, right in the middle of it. And that he is building a city, has built a city that is for you and me, in which our future with God is secure. Men, today, someone greater than your efforts or your results or your achievements is at work loving you towards a future you could never earn, towards a hope you can only imagine. And from his grace, you are now free to love the world that he's put you in wherever your feet hit the ground. Love it holistically, love it sacrificially, in all its glory and ruin. This is your home. Pray for it. Seek its welfare. Put roots down. Love it well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. We do pray that you've
you've challenged us by the life of your son and oh God that you would move our hearts and our imaginations, our eyes and to know what it is to be faithful in the place you've called us. We thank you for Daniel. He'll, he'll flesh these things out for us this semester as he sought to live between the two worlds that you called him into. We pray that, that your word, O oh God, would, uh, would find fertile soil in our hearts and it would produce much fruit. Um, we thank you for loving us in all the ways that you have. We thank you, O oh God, that you are at work in us to prepare for us a hope in the future. In the name of your son we pray. Amen.